Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we have got one of the legendary bands of post-punk America, Mission of Burma. From Boston, Massachusetts, one of the very best of the post-punk bands. Now, people could accuse us, Greg, having cut our mm -hmm. teeth when we were 20 on this band in their first heyday in the clubs of blatant nostalgia here. (laughs) But to them, I will say, fie on you. Yes. Because Burma has reunited after a 20-year absence and come back with two albums that are as strong as anything they recorded in their first incarnation. I I think the storyline here, Jim, is the best second act in rock history. I really think there's no band that has done better in the second go-around then in the first, mm-hmm. and Mission of Burma is coming very close to better. equaling. I don't know if, if they're not, better, but very close. Uh, right certainly up there. right up there with their with their work in the first incarnation. Maybe Wire and the Buzzcocks. It's all because punk doesn't age. You can yeah. still deliver the goods no matter how old you are. Absolutely, and these guys have still got it. We're going to prove it to you in a few minutes. A live performance and an interview in our studio here with Mission of Burma. Later in the show, you've got a Desert Island jukebox pick. But this week, in lieu of news, we have two of the most anticipated biggest album releases of the year. We're going to deal with them right up top. Christina Aguilera and Outkast. No, that's not Cab Calloway reincarnated as a hip-hop act. That is, in fact, Outkast, the Atlanta duo of Andre Benjamin and Antoine Big Boy Patton, riffing a 1930s style on a track called Mighty O. Six albums from these guys, Outkast, and each one a bigger success than its predecessor. And they started off on a pretty high note in the mid-90s. But they have become, I think, Jim, not only the biggest hip-hop group on the planet, but one of the, the biggest pop group on the planet, perhaps. I mean, they, they've gotten to the point where they are megastars, they are celebrities outside of what they do as musicians. Yeah. And this leads to where they are today. Oh, boy. Uh, we have a new album called Idlewild, and we have a movie called Idlewild starring the two key members of Outkast. Now, this, this has been in the works for some time because these guys have made some uh, brilliant videos with their friend, director Brian Barber. What it is is a period piece set in a 1930s speakeasy in Georgia. 
these guys have always been goofy and surreal and had that silly side. Witness Heya, the inescapable single of the year in 2003. But there was also uh, points where, where they dug deep. You know, Rosa Parks is a, is a serious song about the civil rights movement, even though Rosa Parks herself didn't get it and wound up suing Outkast. Or the song Miss Jackson, which was just a you know really heartfelt take on uh, an African-American dad trying to promise, I will be a good father. And one of the keys to their success, I think, Jim, is that they have sort of looked beyond the boundaries of so-called traditional hip-hop. You know, the the sort of well-worn James Brown-style funk samples that a lot of major hip-hop acts have used in the past. They've employed gospel, they've employed elements of soul, rock, blues. Nothing really seems to be beyond their reach. And I think one of the keys to their success is that they have experimented. And here, the question needs to be asked, have they outsmarted themselves? Have they gone too far? We're at a disadvantage here. The movie does not open until a week and a half from now. We haven't seen it. We have been living with this record, though. All right, so let's play a track from this new album. There's a lot to talk about, a lot of wildly varying music. But here is an example of one of the collaborations on the record. This is a Dre-produced track in which Big Boy is one of the primary rappers on it. It's called Morris Brown. And you'll hear that classic outcast experimentation. There's a marching band as the backing group on this particular track. And here it is, Morris Brown on Sound Opinions. Idlewild is called Morris Brown on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Certainly one of the most eagerly awaited albums of 2006. I was looking forward to this, Greg. (laughs) I really was. Me too. Greg, I can't help but think of this in relation to another movie and another great soundtrack, especially because I was at the movies last week and I saw the trailer for Idlewild preceded by a soft drink commercial that was set to this song, which is just one of my all-time favorites. It's called You Give a Little Love. Do you know it? No. It comes from the soundtrack of a 1976 movie by Alan Parker called Bugsy Malone. Oh, my God. Stars the uh, prepubescent, entirely <laughs> kiddie cast, yeah. prepubescent uh, Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo as gangsters in Capone era 1930s Chicago same era different location right and the soundtrack was just killer and I can't help now I, I will forever think of Idlewild in the same breath as Bugsy Malone Bugsy Malone is a much much better album <laughs> than the new Outcast. oh my god that's uh, quite an indictment I, it's true I, I was first excited 
because uh, there was the talk that Dre and Big Boy were doing work together again. Uh, obviously, they're one of the great creative teams in all of hip-hop history. Although they've spent the last five years spent denying the that five, they're split up. Yeah, uh, but you know, all for all intents and purposes, they are. Dre, in particular, seems to be the one who is deciding, you know what, this hip-hop stuff just ain't for me. I'm, I'm going to try acting. I'm going to try singing. Yeah. All the stuff he's not good at, basically. <laughs> he uh, he you know, really cannot sing. And, you know, I, I think the experimentation was starting to wear a little thin on Speaker Box, The Love Below, but it was so audacious and so ambitious that I, I cut him some slack because I just thought, you know, there's still some amazing, amazing music on this. Yeah. Dre is the experimentalist. Big Boy is the more traditional hip-hop guy. Big Boy has the strongest moments on this record by far. Yeah. Dre is, you know, completely lost the plot. I'm not even sure he wants to be an outcast anymore. He's sort of imitating a jump and jive singer on PJ and Rooster. And, uh, you know, it is this kind of almost parody of this music that he's heard but doesn't quite really know how to approach aesthetically. Well, I don't even think he's heard that much of it. I mean, like, yeah. he watched The Sting, you know. Yeah, and, and, that's where and he got his so, info yeah, yeah, from. Right. It's all in the past. Yeah, uh, it doesn't so somewhere in the 19th century, 20th century. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I can't remember like exactly when. I think Dre's just sort of checked out, just kind of like throwing things against the wall. We are geniuses. We can, we, we're known for experimenting. We're known for being eccentric. And that gives us license to do anything we want. You know, it's, it's a bad sign. You know, you've got all these guest stars larding. Yeah. This record, oh boy, and and, and the cameos for the most Snoop part Dogg. Is there are a record abysmal. That, is there a record Snoop Dogg hasn't been on besides Mission of Burma in hey. the last like five years? Oh, I'm telling you, it's it's unbelievable. There's this one vocalist, Sleepy Brown, who does some nice work on that track. Morris Brown, he's a singer, and he's got a much anticipated solo record that's coming out in a few weeks. I'd much rather hear him in the context of that solo record than I hear him sort of, you know, being thrown against the wall with all these other guests on this particular record. I, I'd much rather hear Bugsy Malone on the. Uh, Patented Sound Opinions rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it. It breaks my heart, but I have to say it's a trash it record. It's a trash it record. Uh, Jim, you and I will be back. We will have seen the movie next week. If we ch- somehow it changes our mind, if we do a 180 after seeing the movie and we say, oh, now it all makes sense, we'll be glad to say that. But i got to tell you, based on the record, I'm not holding out a lot of hope. Well, we are music critics, not movie critics. Yeah. <laughs> it's the music at the end of the day that's got to stand up. Exactly. He's a one-stop shop, makes my panties drop. I don't think the Andrews sisters ever sang that in an Abbott and Costello movie. That's Christina Aguilera, obviously, doing her take on that Andrews sisters harmony vocal uh, 1940s thing on her much-anticipated new album. I mean, it's really ironic that you have these two eagerly anticipated and much-hyped albums, both coming out at the same time, both kind of referencing 30s and 40s music. The backstory, Christina Aguilera, when last we heard, she had reinvented herself as (laughs) Extina. Meaning 
you know, if not quite X-rated, she was certainly going for the uh, oh, I don't R know, or uh, well, I get there was the, 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 those chaps without the uh, <laughs> you know the bare bottom chaps that she was writhing around. Yeah, I'd say those that was pretty, X-rated. You have a yeah. pair of those, but yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't hold you against it. She turned skanky, and she was in that competition with her fellow modern mouseketeer turned uh, Lolita-esque pop seductress Britney Spears. However, she always had the better voice, and it was kind of sad to see her doing the whole tawdry routine. Now she's back with her third studio album after having sold 25 million records to date. It's called Back to Basics, and uh, it's a double album. It's ambitious. It's audacious, although uh, like the last Outcast album, there, there's a split. There's a distinct divide between disc one yes. and disc two. Yeah. On disc one, she is primarily working with the former gang star member DJ Premier just fascinating guy Gangstar if you don't remember was a great hip hop group that that drew heavily from uh, jazz and, mm-hmm. and, and that was their thing and he's done great work since then with Nas and Biggie Smalls and Jay Z on disc two, she is working with the modern Diane Warren the mm-hmm. high priced songwriter and producer for hire Linda Perry where, where did Linda Perry come from? Four Non Blondes. Mm-hmm. Remember that? You know, but now she's crafted these multi-platinum hits for Pink and uh, for Gwen Stefani, and she's worked with Courtney Love, yeah. and she is writing the songs on the second disc, which is mostly live instrumentation, whereas DJ Premier is just sampling interesting tracks from the 30s and the 40s. That coming in was from the uh, Linda Perry disc. What we're going to hear now is a very different track from the first disc, the DJ Premier stuff. It's called Oh Mother, which I think is... Christina at her best. I mean, you never knew if there was a real woman under all this posing. Here she's talking about a very troubled home life, the day that her mother left her allegedly abusive father. It's pretty poignant stuff, and it's mm-hmm. a very stripped-down setting. Let's hear this and then give our thoughts on the... Uh, I mean, there's no two ways, but this is an epic, <laughs> sprawling two-album epic, back to basics, from the uh, no longer skanky Christina Aguilera. So young with such innocent eyes She always dreamt of a fairy tale life And all the things that your money can't buy And she thought that he was a wonderful guy And suddenly things seemed to change It was the moment she took Mother from Christina Aguilera, the new album, Back to Basics. And it is one of the more poignant, believable human moments on this record. Christina Aguilera, you're absolutely right, Jim. Perhaps the most talented of that teen Brad Pack that emerged in the late 90s and took over pop music. In terms of just raw singing talent, Aguilera takes a backseat to none of them. And that is a mixed blessing. Yes. Because (laughs) she uses that voice to incredible to do incredible things, as well as to do some 
just plainly show-offy acrobatic things because she has that voice and she's got to use it. There's that curse, post-Whitney Houston yeah. and Mariah Carey, where they've got to do that trilling thing where they span three octaves right. even though there's no reason in the song yeah. emotionally because to do that. Because they can do it. What amazes me, Jim, about Aguilera, uh, who talks about, and Outkast for that matter as well, they talk about referencing these, you know, kind of uh, classic source material yep. for, for, their, for their music. Aguilar talks about being influenced by Etta James and Aretha Franklin, but they show no evidence of actually listening to these people. <laughs> and wow, what was it that made Aretha Franklin or Etta James oh, a great singer? Oh, it was more than just the ability to hit you know, all these amazing notes. Aguilera oversings to a point where it's really annoying. There's also a self, self-referential aspect to this record that indicates yeah. that, like you know, a certain other Disney Club member turned pop diva, she has been living in this bubble of celebrity for so long that she doesn't seem to recognize that there's a, actually a world going on around outside of her yes. that has nothing to do with her and doesn't really care about her personal travails. And then, at the end of the first disc, which is by far the stronger disc, the DJ premiere overseen uh, sample-driven yes. disc, she has five of the most excruciating minutes <laughs> you will ever hear on a pop record by a major celebrity ever in yeah, the history yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of recorded yeah. music. My name is Mike Holman. My name is Shitara Frank. My name is Gustavo Medina. My, my name is Sarah Moore. Tammy Simpson. My name is Corey Phil. My name is Jessica Cavanaugh. I just wanted to let you know that you are truly one of the best artists that I've ever come across. You've taught me to not care about what other people think. You deeply affected me and helped me to deal with and overcome some incidents from my past that I was never able to face before. <laughs> It is insufferable. It's called thank you in parentheses, dedication to the fans. But listen, I I think you're being harsher on it than is necessarily warranted. Having interviewed Britney Spears during her last album, this is kind of a famous quote that got repeated everywhere. I asked her why she chose to cover (laughs) I Love Rock and Roll, and she said it's because she loved Pat Benatar. (laughs) The song wasn't wasn't written by Joan Jett, but it was popularized by Joan Jett. Pat Benatar had nothing to do with it. I think Christina's got a little bit of a better handle on this material than that. She talks in recent interviews quite convincingly about uh, when her family was splitting apart, she found solace with her grandmother and would go record shopping with her and listen to her grandmother's old phonograph LPs. I I wonder what this could have sounded like if she had just sang the songs that she loved listening to with grandma. Mm -hmm. And there's no excusing that, you know, woe is poor multimillionaires me. But but there are moments of of genuine, you know, she's in love, she's married. If we cut this down and it doesn't quite neatly divide because like you said one of the worst songs in the history of music ends side beside one first album we could go through and mm-hmm. prune one really pretty good album and completely trash the other so i'm on the fence i mean i, I certainly the, the bad stuff deserves to be trashed six times over but the good stuff is, is a burn it at least yeah the bad stuff is really bad but i agree there are some things on here she is a talent she's only 25 i mean yeah at, at some point Maybe, you know, she's going to get it because the, the talent is there. You know, so, yes, I'll burn it. Six, five or six tracks, absolutely. Sample Aguilera, look at the potential that's there, and forget about the rest. Well, there you have it. A double burn it for the better moments on uh, Back to Basics by Christina Aguilera. We'll be back with Mission of Burma in the studio, playing for us and talking with us on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. In a few moments, you're going to hear an interview that we did a few weeks ago with Mission of Burma, also getting a live performance uh, from one of the very best bands of the post-punk American scene of 1979 through 83, contemporaries of uh, bands like Sonic Youth, Husker Du, The Replacements, The Minutemen, a classic moment in American rock history. Burma has come back 20 years later to release two albums, On Off On and The Obliterate, which are right up there with the work they did during their so-called classic period, when they had songs like That's When I Reach For My Revolver and Academy Fight Song. Jim, I think it's one of the uh, the great second acts in rock history. This band is, I think, every bit as good as they were when they left off in 1983. Absolutely. I think they make that case. You know, if, if it was just us reliving our uh, sweaty youth yeah. <laughs> in those clubs where we saw Mission of Burma originally, I don't think we'd have indulged ourselves. Uh, well, maybe it's our radio show. <laughs> but the point is they've made one of the best albums of the year. We're pleased to welcome the men of Mission of Burma, Roger Miller, Peter Prescott, Clint Connolly, Bob Weston. Gentlemen, welcome. Glad Hi to guys. have you here. Thank you. Man, I can't believe you guys here. have nothing better to do than, than to hang with us after Wait. having played yesterday. 19,000 people at the Pitchfork Music <laughs> Festival in Chicago. That was just a warm-up for this. This is the one we've had our uh, eyes on for weeks. Yeah. Now, well, that was a pretty amazing event, the Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park in Chicago, a big independent rock festival, uh, 19,000 people out there. At one point, I was thinking to myself, this may have been more people than might have seen you play in the entire first incarnation of the band. I'm just wondering, would that have been far from the <laughs> truth? A, that sounds fairly accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite possible. Well, and the fascinating thing is the median age. There were a lot of high schoolers. There were a lot of young college kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, here you guys are essentially in your third decade. But the thing that I think Greg and I are most excited about, I mean, it'd be all, it'd be all well and good, you know, where we live in our youth, but you don't suck. <laughs> Rare indeed is the list of bands that have come back for a second act and have delivered as good as the first. So I guess I mean, the were you getting is, that you, sense? Were you, were you yeah. getting 18-year-olds coming up to you and saying, hey, you guys are pretty good? Well, when did you form? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they know when we formed and they look at the lines and crevices. But, uh, yeah, it's, that's uh, the ultimate compliment when it has some sort of contemporary use, you know. Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, none of us prefer to be nostalgic. No one wants to be that. And I guess we went way out of our way to avoid it. And the interesting thing is, and you guys are all, to a degree, students of music and music history, and you know the odds are not good (laughs) for bands coming back and being anywhere nearly at the level that they were in the first place. So obviously that must have weighed on you to even, like, attempt to do this after basically um, dissolving in 83, not because... For the usual reasons, we hate each other or we Drug run abuse. out of ideas. <laughs> it was sort of a natural end to the band, which we'll get into in a minute. But what was the impetus to go forward at that point and keep trying to do it? Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think we were, uh, this is Clinton, I think we were aware that there was a bit of a roll of the dice here. There was a considerable amount of trepidation on my point. You know, I kind of sensed that goodwill had kind of accrued around the band and what we were about over the almost 20 years that we didn't play. It was quite remarkable, and it was wonderful. You know, you kind of still hear our name in the conversation, still people referencing or whatever. It was always really cool, and uh, it crossed my mind that we were about to possibly squander all this goodwill that had <laughs> accumulated around our good name. Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of get one pass. You're allowed to come back yeah. and do some reunion right. shows and play uh-huh. the old stuff. And then the second time, it's like, okay, what do you got now? Mm-hmm. Why should we care? 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it came down to a faith in ourselves, not to sound hokey, but I think we all have, you know, really good impulses. I think we trust each other, and that's a huge part of it. I think it's really—I'm really proud of the uh, records we've made since we've been back together. I think that we had an advantage that we folded kind of before we had completed the actual cycle that was Mission of Burma. So for us to reform again in 2002 there was a lot of leftover stuff that hadn't been done. So yeah. in a way, it, was a, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a breakup and a reunion. It was more of a, a cessation and a continuation. Yeah, just put it on hold for <laughs> yeah. 20 years. All right, so you guys are all set up. You, you've hauled all this gear down. Bob's got his, his microphone stand, tape loop, gizmo thing, and uh, yeah. there is a, a wicked set of vintage Slingerland drums. Would you guys <laughs> play us a tune? Yes. Man, that is an, we should not be able to sit here, Greg Cott, and say to Mission of Burma, okay, can you play for us yeah. now? It's a command performance for Sound Opinions by Mission of Burma, ladies and gentlemen. Those of us in the expensive seats will rattle oh our jewelry. Oh, my God. Are we going?
there is, why is that song not being played uh, everywhere in America right now? Every commercial alt rock station should be playing twice right now. That's because Peter Prescott has not delivered the fat wads of, of cash. It's <laughs> uh, a matter, Peter. the only reason. Come on, Peter. We should mention that you are listening to Sound Opinions, and we're here with Mission of Burma. They just played a new song called Twice, which is almost a quintessential Burma song. <laughs> it's an instant classic. Uh, you guys are known for combining these incredible pop melodies with a whole lot of noise and experimentation. It's a sound that's influenced countless musicians. you got Moby and R.E.M. and virtually the entire Touch and Go, Matador Records, uh, Homestead Records back in the day, kind of underground art rock noise bands. It's all there coming from what you guys did. You know, at the same time, there's just a lot of really weak imitations out there. And I've got to ask you, Peter, you know, you've got to be appalled a little bit about the number of bands who've just uh, regurgitated your sound. It's sort of appalling, it, but it's one of those things where you, you go like, okay, 20 years after Chuck Berry, people did those riffs and actually the pistols did yeah. the sex pistols <laughs> right, kind of right, did right. so you know i'm not against them reconfiguring what we saw as fresh it's just it has no meaning to me it's more that plus uh, i mean if your implication is that people are taking our personal sound <laughs> and reconfiguring it i don't think any of us hear that really i don't know no, i no. hear them taking from a lot of the early 80s you know beat driven angular guitar kind yeah. of things from mm-hmm. england but you know, in terms of us, we even though we're lumped in with that ga- gang, quote unquote, other than scronky guitar from Roger and you know Andy Gill, I I don't think we fit into that early '80s scene much at all. Well, also an early punk concept was that you know song structure and what you said in a song didn't have to be this old fart stuff that came before it. You could rewrite those rules, and that was really appealing to us. To you know, don't have verse, chorus, verse. Have one drone that goes through the whole song. You right. know? And those things were really appealing to me, just to n- not have to go by old old rules. Yeah, that, that was the original punk idea. There are no rules. Right. Right. And now there's you know you listen to what is passing for punk and you know, post, 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 new wave that's so popular now. It's all just, you know, most of it's just generic as hell. You know, when, when you guys talk about post-punk, and I think you guys are bringing it forward in a gri- really exciting way with the new stuff and a, a song like Donna Samaria, I, I hear an affection there for disco that probably, maybe I'm totally misreading it, but the cooler ideas in disco were actually really important. And the world that I saw in 79, 80, 81, when, when really exciting things were happening, there were all these boundaries being blurred. There wasn't this demarcation like, you know, you have to like just this one thing. And I think that's what hardcore punk did that I really didn't like, was I, it just sort of yeah, super, drew the lines in the sand. Yep. You know, and, yep. but you guys were coming into this area where it was just way wide open. So like Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer were really great thinkers. Yeah, mixing things in the right, in the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's lots of people that mix things in a really abhorrent way, but <laughs> there's mm-hmm. plenty of people that if you, if you leave those lines blurry, some weird stuff can seep into another thing, and then it sounds like nothing you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. In reference to the record we just made, The Obliterati, we wrote songs, we went and recorded them, and it was so unselfconscious that it was almost like, is this going to be horrible <laughs> i was starting to wonder at one point but but then as it was going along i said don't think about it just go forward and and do and yeah and i think because that, you weren't thinking about it that way in 79 or 80 right you guys are going to play donna samaria for us it's got this donna summer lick kind of the Giorgio Moroda thing comes in but then it's also got this lyric punning on samaria how does all that come together 
it was just this riff that I had, and then I realized that the melody was similar to a Dawn of Summer song, so I referred to it as Dawn of Samaria, just as a joke. Mm. <laughs> and a friend of mine said, well, that's a really good title, and I'd wanted to write what I would refer to as a pure love song that had the words, I want you, I need you, I love you in it, because mm. I'd never <laughs> done that. And so, the I, well, okay, Dawn of Summer, and then she's a love goddess, and then you go to Samaria, and there's the love goddess, I na na, and so it all just kind of... Wow. <laughs> Nothing comes out straight with Burma. <laughs> An erotic song about... All is eros. <laughs> if you aren't unfamiliar, listen to this now. They're going to play Donna Samaria for us, and you, you, you tell me this is a good love song. It's a great song. I don't know if it's a love song. <laughs>
man. All right. That's a hot new band from Boston called Mission of Burma. Donna Samaria from, uh, from the new album, The Obliterati. And after a short break, we'll be back with more of Mission of Burma and Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Once I had my heroes, once I had my dream, but all of that is Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We're here with Mission of Burma, Roger Miller, Clint Conley, Peter Prescott, and Bob Weston. Guys, uh, I want to get back to something that we talked about earlier a little bit. By 83, you'd put out this amazing album, an EP, a couple of singles, and then uh, Mission of Burma basically went away. Roger, what happened at that point? Well, uh, technically it happened because uh, my tinnitus was worsening, and the, these pitches, every couple months a new pitch would appear, it would start beeping, then it would get solid, and it would, I knew that it would never go away for the rest of my life. You know, it's freaky. So that was the reason why I stopped playing in the band, which, you know, I, I think they tried another, another guitarist, but it was a little, I guess it didn't work. Tinnitus is, is a ringing in the ears, a constant ringing in the ears. It comes from loud sound. Generally, right? is, generally the cause is loud sound. Yeah. And you were the, the, most suck, uh, the second most famous sufferer of this uh, yeah, I was the, I was after the post, Pete Townsend. Right, I was the yeah. post-punk poster child. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It was you and Pete. But you and Pete are both back making music, loud music. Proof of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it such, though, that the, the technology's changed, that now you can be really loud and powerful on stage, but, but not be killing yourself? On- well, it is interesting. You know, the world kind of catches up, because now, you know, tons and tons of musicians have tinnitus. It's not a novelty anymore. But, you know, I mean, it's still too loud on stage, you know, technically. I, I really shouldn't be doing this. Well, but that has to but be I, a hard thought. For somebody you know? who lives music like you do, mm. is like, wow, I can lose my hearing if this doesn't stop. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. Okay. I mean, I'm, I can hear you. You're take, just fine. Take care <laughs> of yourself. We're, we're worried about it because we want more loud well, see, Burma. Yeah, right. I would either stop playing entirely. You know, it's like a football player. If they love playing football, they're not going to mm-hmm. stop. God, I might break my elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to stop them from playing because then they won't be football players anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the fourth member of the band who I think if he had his way would sit there and not say a word. <laughs> right, Craig? The, uh, the self-effacing Bob Weston. Uh, now, back in the day, in the first incarnation of Burma, Martin Swope was a friend of yours who uh, would do sound from the soundboard and run tape loops. Back in the days, kids, they used to have this this brown stuff called tape, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it would go from one reel to the other. But he would take the reels off and kind of just roll it around something so that it returned in an endless loop. Yeah, like a yeah about a two-and-a-half-second loop, maybe. And then right. sounds from the stage would, would be fed into that. Yeah, he would do it all live. He would never go in with pre-recorded stuff. So it was always, you know, it was happening. And was that a conscious thing? I mean, because Brian Eno had done that for Roxy Music in the 70s on the first two albums. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a a Brian Eno-related 
activity. And we definitely wanted something. I mean, it fit the band that it would have to be done while it was happening. That very much fit the band. In the moment. Even at the beginning of the band, it really yeah. fit. And All right. So when and, you and guys, Roger, I should point out you've made Jim very happy because we've now got another Brian Eno reference into the show. Obligatory Eno. <laughs> That's once, important. Every show, show has to have at least one Brian Eno reference, otherwise Jim can't proceed. Sounds, sounds, sounds right to me. Like T-Bone Burnett over <laughs> yeah. there or Timberlake, you know. We like to make others happy. <laughs> yeah, so. you know. But uh, uh, when you guys reform, Martin is in Hawaii. Is that the story? Yeah. It was not available. So right. uh, Bob Wesson, who's one of our colleagues here on Chicago Public Radio, does some stuff with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and uh, is a fine musician in his own right, had been in Volcano Suns with Peter. Now, in you, spite of that, we <laughs> no. called him anyway. What? <laughs> <laughs> not again. No, I've known these guys all for a long time. I was in the Volcano Suns with Peter, and the Volcano Suns toured with some of Roger's different solo acts. You know, I'd met Clint at the shows, and I, had, I was friendly with Martin also. You're downplaying the fanboy aspect of this. You were a you rabid were. Burma fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Of course. When I heard they were going to do the reunion, I offered up to do the sound. When I found out Martin was not going to be involved, I offered to do the, the live sound. And then I didn't know if they still wanted to have tape loops. If they did, I'd be willing to try it unless they had someone else. And it just sort of worked out. Yeah, there was lots of people applying for <laughs> I that don't know. job. I just didn't want to be too pushy about it. You know, I really... And yeah, are you kidding? I mean, a... I get to be in my favorite band. You know, yeah. It's amazing. You're a bit of a purist, too, because you are using the reel-to-reel I'm using stuff. the reel-to-reel, uh, yeah. When we decided that I would try to do the loops, I tried a couple of different sampling devices and some computer devices. That It just doesn't work right. Do you, uh, it's not messed up enough. But it just looks so charming. It does look cool. Tag. The tape loop thing is really funny, too, because... A tape loop is literally, you know, it's like three feet long, and you tape it together, so it makes an actual loop. It's a loop of tape. And I've had all these, a lot of 20-year-old kids come up, and they're looking at the thing, and they're like, what, is, what are you doing? What is that? And I say, it's a tape loop. And they don't get the concept that the word loop comes from the fact that that's an actual loop <laughs> of tape. Mm-hmm. They're thinking of a computerized Bob, loop. Bob, they've never seen tape. Yeah. <laughs> no, but to this them, a loop, a when they age. think about loops, they don't think about a physical loop. Right. All right, gentlemen, uh, can we have another great Mission of Burma song, please? (laughs) We'd be happy to oblige.
Da, da, da. I love that song. Max Ernst from Mission of Burma's first incarnation. We have been thrilled to have Mission of Burma as our guests on Sound Opinions. We want to thank uh, Roger, Clint, Peter, and Bob for being our guests today. Thank you so much, guys, for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, talking about a song we can't live without at this moment in time. Actually, Greg, it was kind of a whole D.I.J. feature segment there, having Mission to Burma here. Yeah, that was awesome. uh, I don't know, you're going to have to dig deep, buddy, to top that. Indeed. Well, I'm still thinking about uh, what we were talking about in the early part of the show when we were reviewing the Outkast and the Christina Aguilera albums. Both of these artists digging deep in their minds, going back into time and referencing the music of the 30s. And the question keeps reoccurring, what are they listening to? They're turning that music into a cartoon. And I want to play a song from the 30s, recorded in the 30s, that is most definitely not a cartoon. It is a song that was recorded by Billie Holiday in 1939. And it is perhaps her most famous song and also her most controversial. She came to this song when a public school teacher in uh, New York City by the name of Lewis Allen. That's actually a pseudonym for him. Uh, his actual name was Abel Mirpole. He approached Billy while she was performing at a Manhattan club, the only integrated club in Manhattan at the time in 1939, and handed her a poem and, and said, here, look at this. I'd, I'd love you to do this song. It was basically just 12 lines, three stanzas, four lines each, a song called Strange Fruit. And Billie Holiday was stunned when she read those 12 lines. Basically, what it was was a poem that in very brutal, harrowing detail described the lynchings that were going on in the South to that day. There was about, by conservative estimate, about 4,000 lynchings in the South in the first half of the 20th century. And this was all going on underneath the nose of the American government, which didn't seem to to want to do a whole lot about stopping it from happening. And Abel Maripol saw a picture, uh, a particularly brutal picture of the lynchings in the South, and this white Jewish schoolteacher in New York City was so moved that he wrote this poem, had it published in 1937. In 1939, he asked Billie Holiday to record it because he'd written some music for it. And Holiday, her performance could have easily been one of outrage and histrionics and just incredible anger. But yet her performance of this song is incredibly reserved, almost grim. She holds back. She still has a lightness in her voice. But the way she emphasizes certain lines, the way she talks about the sort of the irony of 
one of the lines, past, a pastoral scene of the gallant South. Mm. The way she sings that line, you can just tell there's an anger sort of bubbling beneath the surface. And the way she drops certain words, when she talks about the trees are about to drop their strange fruit, the way she sings those words are just chilling. But it's all understatement. A it's lot of not about overstatement. have written about this as inescapable from the context of the American Civil Rights Movement. Absolutely. The, one of the most important and influential political pieces of music ever recorded. Absolutely. And, and may have been really the first great protest song about racism. It, it certainly was in the mind of Leonard Feather, the great jazz critic. He, he called it the first unmuted cry against racism. There had been other songs that addressed racism before that. Louis Armstrong's uh, had a song called Black and Blue and Irving Berlin's Supper Time to an oblique degree referred to lynching, but never so directly as this. There was no doubt what this song was about and what its stance was. And it really wasn't a jazz song. It really wasn't a blues song. It had sort of a very slight melody, but it is one of the great songs ever written. It's been covered many, many times since then. But almost all the versions are incredibly mournful and incredibly reverent to the subject matter, to the point where you, you feel like the person singing is being moved to tears. And and who wouldn't be? But I think the power of Billie Holiday's performance is the restraint in it, that she doesn't turn in it turn it into bathos. She lets the words speak for themselves. And I think it's even more chilling and haunting that way. So when you're listening to this performance, think about the restraint, think about the understatement, and this is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Aguilera is still looking to have this kind of restraint in her performances. Outcast is turning these 30 songs into sort of a jivey cartoon. Billie Holiday is doing none of that here. This is the stuff they should have been listening to. This is the stuff they should have been referencing, not only the song itself, but the performance. Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, from 1939. Oh, 
the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck for the sun to rot for the tree Strange Fruit from Billie Holiday, and if you didn't have a few hairs in the back of your neck standing up on that last word as she drops it on you, I, I, I'm not sure if I got any hope for you, because it's just an amazing song. How much longer did she live after that performance, Greg? Uh, she was 24 when she recorded that song, and she lived another 20 years. She died when she was 44. So an amazingly short life with an amazing track record of great music. Not sure we can top Billie Holiday uh, in terms <laughs> Not of... Not sure if we're going to have any great music. The kind of music that we're going to be looking at next week. But it is a big, big week of releases, Jim. The fall is coming up upon us, believe it or not. The summer is ending, and that means a flood of big releases. This is when, traditionally, the record industry tries to make the most hay. Between now and Thanksgiving. Lots of lots of big albums coming up. Right. And uh, two of the biggies, Bob Dylan with a new record, his first one in five years. And The Roots, one of the great hip-hop bands out there, as well as a slew of other new albums that we'll be looking at in next week's show. we got some thank yous to say on the way out. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer. Missing in action, but we love you, Matt. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. Get some uh, legal help from Dino Armiro, some technical help from Joe Dassault, engineering help from Mary Gaffney, and Bob Weston, thank you in particular for bringing Mission of Burma up here. Jim Russell over at American Public Media. We use Skanky Ho again. Don't be too upset. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, thanks for listening. Ha, ha, ha.